And thank you for the invitation, Kendall. Kendall and I, we've known each other for 20 years. And as I, as when I came back from Andrew's first time, uh, I was assigned to a few churches in northern Tasmania. And Kendall was a pastor in the middle, right? Oh no, you were in the south? Launceston, Launceston, that's right, Launceston. And we became friends, and we both had little girls, and we both built cubby houses for the little girls at that stage. He's very good at that. His cubby house was better. <laughs> I, I couldn't aspire to a cubby house like that. It had two stories, you know. Mine only had electricity, that's it. And he's got electricity too, right? <laughs> so, but his contribution to my cubby house, or my girl's cubby house, was that he wired it electrically. So that was lovely. And uh, we were able to use it, although we took it to America and there's a different electricity that we couldn't use it. But it's all right. It was great memory from Tasmania those days. So we've been friends ever since. And last year I came to uh, pastors' meetings. And a couple of your pastors were there at that stage. That was just before COVID uh, pandemic occurred. And we had a wonderful time. And Kendall heard me speak about God's grace and invited me to come to your church uh, today to present just a mini-series on God's grace. As I explained <clears throat> this morning in the other part of this building, it's very difficult to present this whole story in four hours. So uh, I, mean, I taught several semesters on this, those issues, and to compress those into a couple of hours, it's kind of difficult, but I will did my best for this morning and try to do my best today during this worship service and in, in the afternoon. So this morning we talked uh, about story of God's grace in the earliest Christianity outside of the scriptures. We began with the Old Testament, New Testament, and then we moved into, into early Christianity. And we realized how early Christianity was powerfully impacted by Greek philosophy and how Greek philosophy, this Greek philosophical thinking robbed Christianity of true, pure, biblical understanding of grace and how it's developed eventually in a Catholic church and what it means that Catholic church has this grace and uh, works kind of orientation and why it all goes back, of course, to Greek uh, philosophy. And I ended my presentation saying that the church at that stage desperately needed the Reformation desperately. God sent the Reformation because the church went astray. So let us pray before we begin. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you right now with open hearts and open minds. I pray that you will bless us as we travel the way of discovery of what your grace is and how you guided the church throughout the history into rediscovery of your grace. I pray that you will bless us as we open the scriptures, that you will be with us, that you open our hearts and minds. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, I read a very interesting book from one of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey. He's, of course, the author of the book, What's So Amazing About Grace, wonderful work. But he wrote some other books. And this was a one of his books that I particularly treasured, Finding God in Unexpected Places. You know, I kind of grew up in an environment where we thought that 
uh, Adventist church is it, you know, and we've got all grace, everything among us, within us and outside of Adventist church is Philistia, right? So places where God does not operate and so on. But through reading that book, I and it was more than 20 years ago, 25 years ago that I read that book, I've learned something else, that God's grace is everywhere. That God works everywhere using his grace with all people everywhere. And I kind of developed a, a different kind of attitude. I, since the reading that book, I decided I will look for God's grace in various places. So now when I see a wedding, even though those people may be non-believers, I would say this is a sign of God's grace that men and a woman want to get married and walk through life. They love each other. They want to walk through life together. This is a sign of God's grace. A funeral... People do not rejoice at funerals, but people observe those rituals. I mean, if we really embrace the atheistic worldview, naturalistic worldview, we should be used to funerals. Why do we still cry at funerals, even though we may not believe in God? Because we were created for eternity. And every funeral reminds us that God wants us with him one day to live eternally. When you see every baby being born, it's a sign of God's grace. And I've learned to see signs of God's grace everywhere around me. I remember once I found God's grace in a pub. When I was a young pastor, just starting my ministry from Avondale College into Greater Sydney Conference, I did Bible studies in Blacktown with one man who lived in a caravan behind some somebody's building and one day I came to do Bible studies with him he was not there but I knew where he would be he would be in a local pub so this young Adventist pastor decided to visit that pub you know and when I entered that pub it was full of smoke and smell of alcohol and so on and I saw that particular man sitting with his friends and he was very apologetic he forgot about the Bible study but I had my Bible study right there in the pub and I saw people trying to find grace in the pub, you know, meeting with each other, trying to uh, be friends with one another, doing all kinds of things. I saw sign of God's grace. I think Ellen White would not be surprised. She wrote in Steps to Christ, in the matchless gift of his son, God has encircled the whole world with an atmosphere of grace, as real as the air which circulates around the globe. As Adventist Christians, we should be familiar, very much familiar with the idea of God's grace. After all, we belong to the denomination that goes back to the Protestant Reformation. We call ourselves Protestants, and the Reformation was all about grace. Our theological roots go right back to the 16th century Reformation. And grace is a part of intricate part of Adventist message. In Revelation 14.6, one of our primary passages is that I saw another angel flying in mid-air and hit the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth. Three angels' messages are all about the eternal gospel and the most important element of that eternal gospel is message of God's grace. And yet, and yet we Adventists kind of um, tend to approach God's grace at times with some distrust, even uncertainty. 
On the one hand, we would say that grace is a wonderful thing. The salvation by grace, we sing about it, we talk about it. It's a wonderful gift from God. We speak about it in our Bible studies when we talk to other people. We have themes of God's grace occasionally in our Sabbath school lessons. We've got articles in the record on grace and so on. On the other hand, when, when we approach the topic of salvation by grace alone, that is free, no strings attached. Some of us become uncomfortable, little nervous, kind of ill at ease. It's just like really free, just, just nothing that... Uh, no, this just doesn't work like this in real life. Maybe this is a wonderful theological theory, but in real life, really, grace, mm, well, well, I'm a third-generation Adventist. I'm a son of a pastor. I'm, I'm a pastor myself. And I always, often heard sentiments like this. This pastor only speaks about God's grace. What about keeping the commandments? What about obedience? Other Protestants, some others would say, speak of grace. This is message of Protestantism. We have special message. Or somebody else would say, if you speak much about God's grace, Adventist standards go down. And then I hear cheap grace. I believe God saved me by grace so I can do whatever I want. It doesn't mat matter how I behave. Have you heard such sentiments? Well, I have. I have a lot. Often a fear of this idea of cheap grace uh, prevents us from fully embracing the message of God's grace. Perhaps the reason is that in our history, we often place a great emphasis on the commandments. And I'll talk about this a little bit this afternoon, how this evolved within our denomination. And maybe we developed a fear that the more we speak about God's grace, the more we'll forget about God's commandments. Well, to answer to, to this, I only have one answer, really. There's no such thing as cheap grace. This scarlet cord reminds us of this. Someone paid a huge price. Cheap and grace are oxymoron. They do not belong in the same sentence. They are contradiction. We recently bought a house in Morissette Park. And it's a, it's a really lovely place. And uh, at the back of the house, just when I have my office, the window looking back, we had this huge, amazing bougainvillea. It's an amazing plant. It was really big and fantastic flowers. And I really loved that tree. And just as it happened about a month ago, there were, we had a windstorm and that tree fell down. And it was a task of my wife and myself that we had to cut this into pieces, just bit by bit and, and, and put it to the road so somebody would take it away. But what do you know about Bougainvilleas? Ah, it has incredible thorns. I don't think any plant has thorns like Bougainvillea has. I think devil must have invented them, you know? When we were cutting this, this Bougainvillea, it was just like, ouch, 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 ouch. And uh, my wife got pricked in, the, in her knee and she couldn't walk for a couple of days, you know, because, I mean, those thorns are hard. But as we were cutting and collecting those branches uh, of Bougainvillea, I could not, and my wife also, we could not, could only think of one thing. I would just bend this Bougainvillea into a circle and, and look at this 
those thorns, and I imagine those thorns being pushed into, onto Jesus' head. Oh, grace is not cheap. Grace is not cheap. And this was only a small part of the suffering of Jesus. From God's perspective, grace is never cheap. In reality, the truth is that the more we emphasize behavior, the more we emphasize commandments, the more we forget about God's grace. And the more we forget about God's grace, the the less we preach about it, the more problems we are going to have in our churches, the more conflicts and issues that, that will arise. If we really want to follow Jesus Christ and be his church, we have no choice. We must speak about grace. And preaching grace must be part most important part of our proclamation. To go a little deeper into our study of God's grace this morning, I would like you to open your Bibles to uh, the book of Romans. Uh, Chapter 1, and then I will read from verse 16. So the book of Romans, chapter 1 and verse 16. You can open your electronic Bibles or real Bibles. Uh, Not that electronic Bibles are not real Bibles, but I prefer the text still. And... There, verse 16. So let me just tell you a little bit about this passage. Uh, This passage is really famous. It gave a lot of troubles uh, to Luther, a famous Protestant reformer. Let me read it and I'll tell you about this passage a little bit more. So in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that one sentence here in in this passage, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, is probably the most important Part of a sentence in history of Christianity. Uh, For Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, understanding this passage, understanding this this sentence in in red changed absolutely everything. Uh, You see, uh, during Luther's time, the church told the believers that they have to do everything in their power to gain God's favor. That they are just not good enough. That was the message of the church. You are not good enough and you have to do something in order to gain God's favor. We talked about this this morning during the Sabbath school. So the church used this theme that you are not good enough for fundraising. And uh, that actually happened all the time. If the church held the power of salvation, if the church held the grace in its hand, the church dispensed grace. When people did something, they were receiving God's uh, grace. So, so in this way, for example, what the, how the great basilica of St. Peter in Rome was built through this kind of understanding of salvation, through collecting money, through basically telling people that are not good enough, you pay something, you will be good enough. So you can read the story in great controversy. So Luther's question at that time, when he was a young monk, where am I good enough? Am I good enough before God? What can I do to be good enough to please God? What more can I do? Have I obeyed God's commandments well enough? Am I good enough? Just listen to Luther for just a moment, what he wrote later on. 
question that troubled me constantly. Have I done enough? My conscience could never achieve, certainly, but was always in doubt and said, you have not done this correctly. You were not you were not contrite enough. You omitted this in your prayer. The longer I tried to heal my uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience, the more uncertain, weak, and troubled it became. Despite prayer vigils, fasts, and other most severe exercises with which I afflicted myself nearly to death as a monk, doubt still remained in my mind, and I thought, who knows if these things are pleasing to God? Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, I was angry with God and said, as if it's not enough that miserable sinners are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, without having God at pain to pain by threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Maybe none of us here, maybe none of you experienced what Luther experienced. But have you ever worried Deep down inside, have you asked yourself a question, am I good enough? Am I good enough for God? Have I obeyed enough? Have I obeyed well enough? Is my obedience good enough? What if it is not good enough? In the midst of deepest agony, God opened Luther's eyes and the Reformation began. So let's go back to the text and explore a little bit Luther's discovery. That sentence, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, can be read in two ways. And they are both grammatically correct according to, according to Greek grammar. It can be read, read as righteousness of God or can be read as righteousness from God. And both of those ways are correct. But those ways of reading represent two different ways of being saved. Okay, so let me just explore this a, a little bit. So first of all, we'll take a look at righteousness of God, how Luther understood this. I have a, here a very useful tool. Uh, I think this is probably the most useful tool of all tools that I have at home. This is actually borrowed from Kendall because he shares my passion for building. And you know you cannot build without... A tape, right? You have to measure correctly. If you don't measure things correctly, things kind of don't look nice, right? They kind of like, yeah, so, so this is a very good tool. Anyway, but today we're going to use it as a standard. This is a certain standard, right? So you have to measure something. You have to just, if you want to reproduce, for example, this pulpit, you will know that this pulpit is 600 millimeters, okay? So I can build another pulpit that will be exactly the same. So I use this tool as a standard. Now, how do I know that this is correct standard? This is a metric system right here. And so this would be about meter right here. How do I know that this is a meter, okay? Because this is measured according to another standard. Somewhere in France, there is a building when they held this special kind of piece of metal that, is, uh, that has kind, two kind of different metals that do not react to temperature too strongly. And this is one meter. 
This was established in the 19th century as one meter. And this is the only place where true one meter exists. All the other one meters are measured according to that meter in France. So this is a certain standard, okay, according to which I measure things to make sure that things are correct. So imagine that, that this is God's righteousness, this, this whole packet here, this package right here, this is God's righteousness. And we must get as close to God's standard as possible to gain his favor. So God gave us a standard. The standard is, biblically speaking, Ten Commandments. Okay, And in order to get here, I have to obey, fulfill the standard that I have right here. So God gives me the standard. I begin my Christian life somewhere here at the bottom. And God tells me, you got Ten Commandments. You obey the Ten Commandments. You just go up. Okay, and be as good as you can, obey, 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 until you reach this place, and then we are going to compare you, how good you really are, compared to my righteousness. At some God, God will do this kind of judgment, whether obedience was good enough to get us to heaven. A frequent result of this kind of theology is a question, you know, God is going to check me one day, am I good enough? Is my obedience good enough to get me to heaven? So the question is, does God really love me just as I am? Does he really love me if I'm not quite there, if I'm maybe halfway through or somewhere here? Am I really good enough for God? Does he really love me? What if I will never be able to reach his standard? You know, what will happen to me in that case? And we just keep checking ourselves whether we are good enough. And Luther found himself somewhere on this journey, checking himself up, wondering if he's good enough for God, who is up somewhere up, hey, up there with his righteousness and judging him. You know, for Luther, it was very difficult to love this kind of God. And as I read to you, he, he hated him. I hated the word righteousness of God because I was trying as hard as I could and I could never measure up to what I thought God required of me. I hated that God who punishes, who, who is righteous, okay, righteousness of God, and punishes the unrighteous sinner. When I came to Tasmania in 2001, this is the time when we shared ministry together with Kendall, I had a friend. You know, in, in fact, I discovered lots of people in that area who were ex-Adventists, you know, who, who left the church for a variety of reasons, and I kind of figured out if I befriend those people, I'll have more people come to my church. And I'll, there were more people outside of the church than in the church. And many of them left over those kind of issues I'm just describing to you. And this guy was one of my friends. And I decided to really work with him, dedicate my two years to really be close to him. I met with him once a week. We went to Banjos uh, Bakery to have breakfast together. We talked um, we spent a lot of time. He was an ex-Adventist. He grew up an Adventist and left the church. And, and he began to drink, smoke, and, and uh, all kind, gamble, all kinds of things. And he would tell me all the time. I could not get to his mind. To his mind. He would tell me, I'm not good enough. I'm just not good enough to come to church. I, I have to fix my life first. Two years. Two years it took me finally to convince him that he needs to come and that he will not be judged. You know, I heard this from too many people 
in my ministry. But, well, I grew up kind of like this. Uh, you probably wonder where I come from. I'm Polish by birth. I came to Australia when I was 22 in 1986, and I went to Avondale without speaking any English. So when I was growing in Poland, okay, when I was a, a young boy, we couldn't speak English at that stage. And uh, we received materials from Trans-European Division. They were sending us books for children. The teachers were using those books um, in, to teach the Sabbath school lesson. But we couldn't know, we didn't know what the words were saying because none of us could speak English. Teachers could not speak English, but teachers were using the words to tell the message to the children. And one of the messages that I remember the most from those years is this. Okay, this is what our teachers would use, and they would say, one day, one day your name will come up. One day you will be standing like this before that angel, and that angel will be asking you questions. So you better be a good boy. You better obey. Okay, you better be good now, because you never know when your name will come up. And I would often, as a young boy, look deeply into that picture. And you know, that angel who is looking at that man... His face is not nice. It's kind of like almost, almost stern, angry face type of thing. And I imagine myself as a young 12, 13-year-old boy standing like that poor man before this angel house wondered, am I good enough for God? And this was the message that, that, that I received. And you know, in my generation, many people see God quite like that. That one day I will stand before God. This is the picture of righteousness of God. This is the picture of the standard that we have to measure up to. And God one day will take a look at us and make a decision whether we are good enough. But this passage can be read in a different way. And this was Luther's breakthrough. This was that great paradigm shift that this is this passage. When Luther understood this passage, this is when the Reformation actually began. Praying, despairing, focusing on, on this passage, Luther finally understood what Paul was saying about God's righteousness. He understood that Paul is not talking about righteousness according to which God judges the people, according to which God compares the people to, but he's speaking about righteousness that God wants to give to him. Righteousness that he wants to endow him. So this is God's righteousness that is given to Luther. God's righteousness is given to us. Instead of fulfilling, asking Luther to fulfill the law, God fulfilled the law. God did it himself. In other words, God satisfied the condition for salvation. Obedience is a requirement to get to heaven, but God did it. God did it. When Luther finally understood this phrase, he knew the righteous will live by faith. He knew what it meant, finally. So go, let's go back to my illustration here. So here's the standard. The standard is the same. God established the standard. And God wants us to be saved. God wants us to go to heaven. But God knows our hopeless situation. He knows that if we're trying to obey to get to heaven, we'll never be able to make it. Because the Bible message is that we are just not good enough for that. The Bible teaches us that we are not 
good enough. Okay? So God knows our hopeless situation. He knows that we want to be saved. He knows that we want to go to heaven. He knows that we will never be able to fulfill the condition. And he knows that most common Christian question is, am I good enough? So God has a simple answer to this question. You are not good enough. You will never be good enough. Your obedience will never be good enough. In Isaiah 64, 6, a passage I quoted this morning already in, in our first meeting, all our all righteous acts are like filthy rags. You see, anything I do in terms of, I mean, there may be good things, okay? There may be things that I help others and I do good things for others and so on. But in terms of gaining salvation, they all like filthy rags. And I wish I could tell you what the filthy rags really mean in Hebrew. There's a specific word that's quite ugly. God could not use stronger words for, for Hebrew people and us today to convey the message. So God looks at this situation he, instead of us climbing up, God comes down to us and takes us on a ride. He endows us with his salvation. He comes up with solution himself. Do you remember this famous story about Abraham? This is Genesis 22. When Abraham receives this incredibly strange message from God. And God tells him, take your son. Take him and sacrifice him on the mountain. And Abraham, being an obedient person, does it. He's taking his son and he's taking him to the mountain. And think about Isaac, how he must have felt, you know, when he's wondering, where is the sacrifice, Dad? Okay, we've got wood, we've got fire, where is the sacrifice? Okay, what, and, and, and what did Abraham say? God will provide. God will provide. Isaac is a perfectly obedient son. I mean, can you think about it? That, uh, about him, like, like he's perfectly obedient. He's obedient to God. When he finds out that he has to lay on the altar, he's perfectly obedient. He's obedient to his father. He's obedient to God's command. And he was about to die. His obedience was worth nothing. What stopped this whole situation? God alone. It was God alone who... Stopped Abraham's hand. It was not the obedience of Isaac. It was God's hand. And God says, look, there's ram in the thicket. And it was the place where Abraham called God Yahweh Yireh. Or Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh Yireh. God the provider. Just to tell Abraham and to tell us today that your obedience is not going to save you. Only the blood can save you. The blood of the ram that was symbolizing the blood of Christ later on. So God wants us to fulfill the standard, but he does it himself. He fulfills the standard. And he just says to us, hold on to me, hold on to me, fix your eyes on me, as author of the Hebrews would say, fix your eyes on me and I'll do the rest for you. God gave us the eternal gift. That gift is by his grace, the gift of salvation. You don't have to pay for this gift with your obedience. I didn't say this really 
Paul said this, and we already read this passage. For it is by grace you have been saved. We read this this morning. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Are you catching this? It is not from yourselves. This means nothing you can do in this life will get you to heaven. It is impossible. It is simply a gift from God. This is it. Not by works. And what does Paul mean here? By works of obedience. Obedience to the commandments so that no one can boast. Because if you change this a little bit, by my works I can get to heaven. I become my own savior. There are two saviors. God is a savior and I am a savior. And I cannot say glory to God alone for my salvation anymore. You know, when I read some works by Ellen White, I find very interesting passages. She would completely agree with this. She said this, if any man, listen carefully, if man cannot, or man cannot merit salvation by anything he can do, if man cannot by any of his good works merit salvation, then it must be holy of grace. It is wholly a gift. Justification is wholly of grace and not procured by any works that a fallen man can do, or woman. And another passage from Faith and Works. If you, this is, I love this passage. Just listen to this. If you would gather together everything that is good and holy and noble and lovely in man, and then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in salvation of the human soul, or in merit, the proposition would be rejected as treason. So let me bring it home with another illustration. Okay, you heard about Avondale. Avondale not that long ago became university, and you heard this is a great school, and you really would like to attend. And by the way, this is a bit of a plug for Avondale. I'm saying a parable here, but Avondale is a great school. My, I've got two daughters at Avondale, and they and they came to closer to Christ through their attendance of Avondale. So I encourage you to think of that if you haven't yet. It's a great school. But anyway, so you heard about great school called Avondale University. And you really want to go to that school next year to do your BA or MA, whatever. And you know that this is a wonderful school, great Christian teachers and great Christian education and so on. You have six months um, to, to apply, so you send your application on time and you get accepted. There is a catch, though. The catch is that you have to pay for entire year in advance before you get accepted. You have a problem. You don't have the money. Uh, you want to come to Australia. You live in a foreign country. It's expensive. There's no, no perks like hex from government. There's a bad exchange rate. And you kind of wonder, all right, I can either save my money or I can just forget about Avondale University. But you really want to go to Avondale, so you try to save your money. You have the entire six months to save your money. But there's a problem. You don't earn that much. And, and really, you don't have enough to, not enough to save. You have to pay for rent. You have to pay for food. You have to pay for a doctor. You have to pay all kinds of things. Even though you try to save, you have you saved nothing. To add to this problem, you have an issue. You have a problem that no, you think nobody knows about. You are a pornography addict. In secret, you spend quite a lot of money on online pornography. You fight this tendency, but 
but it's just so hard and temptation is too great. And of course, you are a bit of a spendthrift. You like to spend your money on, on, on things that your friends have. This, this iPhone, it costs arm and a leg, is expensive, and you really want it, so, so you just spend some money on, on your, on your, on new iPhone. The result is you don't have any money. By the end of the time, the period that you were supposed to save, you think to yourself, well, I tried. I tried. I will not go to Avondale. You call Avondale on the registration day and you dial the number and you say, um, I'm so sorry. I tried to make it. I tried to raise enough money. I just didn't work. I'm so sorry. There's a moment of silence. Could you, could you please wait a second? I'm transferring you to this financial advisor. Just wait a second. What's the point you think? I will hear the same, the same I'll be further embarrassed, same message that I can't go to Avondale. Hello? Can I help you? You give your name, explain your situation once again, and then she says, you don't know? You don't know? Your account being paid in full. You, you can come and begin your master's program. I'm just writing to confirm that email to you that everything has been paid in full. You are completely stunned. There must be some mistake. This is just, just impossible. Where did the money come from? She said, well, there's no mistake. The, the, your account is paid in full. The money came from that and that person. And you realize this is your older brother. You are stunned. Because your older brother knows everything about you. He knows that you're gambling with sex. He knows about your overspending. He knows everything about you. And a few other things that, you, that no one else knows. Some years ago... You got mad at him and decided not to talk to him anymore. Despite of that, your brother found out somehow that you wanted to study at Avondale and paid your account in full, the entire fee. Still stunned, you grab the phone and dial your brother's number. Hey, sorry, I, I haven't been in touch for so long. Are you okay? I'm calling to say thank you. You know, it was very nice for what you did for me, very nice, but you really didn't have to do this. I would manage somehow. Well, you know, let me make a deal. I will pay you back. No? At least half. Please let me pay at least half. No? Or at least $100. Let me pay $100. I have to pay you something back. No, 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 Stage, your brother. This is my gift for you. If you want to pay anything back, even if it's $100 or $20 or even 5 my gift becomes a discount. It's no longer a gift. So my friends, grace is that God knows everything about you. He knows that you are not good enough. Still, He loves you and wants you to give you the gift of eternal life. Grace means there are no secrets with God. And in spite of this, he embraces you as part of his family. Grace is something that you do not deserve. In fact, the word deserve does not exist in God's vocabulary. Grace is that there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Grace is completely free. 
If you keep the commandments to get to heaven, if you are obedient so, so you, that you may get to heaven, salvation becomes a salary. Salvation becomes a discount. Now, this is not a new theology I'm teaching here. In Romans 4 and verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says this, Now the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. So, once again, when we go up through our obedience, go up and up and up and up and up, our salvation is wages. Our salvation is salary. That's not what the Bible says. God alone is the author of our salvation. He alone pays the price for our salvation. We contribute nothing. We contribute nothing. It is that teaching, that very teaching, that makes Christianity different to any other religion in existence. This is the genius of the Reformation. Solido Gloria was one of the slogans of the Reformation. You know the slogan, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Solus Christus, by Christ alone. Solido Gloria, glory to God alone for my salvation. This was the bedrock of the Reformation. This is why the Reformation began, because the Reformers wanted to give glory to God alone and not to me for my works, that salvation is a reward to my work. All right, this is all very nice, but what about keeping the commandments? I get God's grace, but what about obedience? Aren't we supposed to keep the commandments? Did not God call us, Seventh-day Adventists, to emphasize uh, God's commandments, is this not part of our message? How does grace work with keeping of the commandments? This will be the theme of my afternoon presentation. We'll talk about journey of Adventism as far as God's grace is concerned. Let me conclude today with a story. Richard Seltzer, the surgeon, tells of a young man and woman he just operated on. Dr. Seltzer writes, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies. Her face is post-operative, her mouth twisted in pulses, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor from her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they? Who are they, I ask myself. He and this woman with the tortured mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, so greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I, I, I like it, he says. It it's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I lower my gaze. Unmindful of me, he bends 
to kiss her crooked mouth, and I, so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show that the kiss still works. I hold my breath and let the wonder in. My friends, Jesus, like that young husband, twisted his body to let you know that the kiss still works. No matter how bad you think you are, no matter if you think you're not good enough, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, won't you love God like that? Won't you give him your heart today?